you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, we continue our look at this gospel account of Christ, verses 27 to 36 of this chapter. And following the reading of scripture, we'll sing the Gloria Patri printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Let us bow, please, for a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We ask that you might please uh, send your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds, that we might understand what is given to us here, and that he might empower us to fulfill and obey that which you've uh, given to us. I pray that you would oversee all that is said, that it all would be pleasing in your sight and would bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Ryan, uh, in going through the Beatitudes and the woes, Uh, helped us to appreciate the character of the kingdom that Jesus Christ is establishing. Uh, It is, as he said, an upside-down kingdom. The values of our world say that those who are wealthy, powerful, and strong are the ones who are successful and the ones who are blessed. But Jesus says, no, it's those who are poor that are blessed. Now, there's no... Um, uh, nothing wonderful, nothing, uh, no virtue in poverty in and of itself. But what Jesus is communicating is how uh, the values of this world are not the values of the kingdom. And you and I have to be kingdom citizens and following along uh, the path that he has laid out for us. And you'll notice the command that we're given here is not the command to love those who love you. You don't need that command. You are glad to do that. You're willingly loving those who love you. But he gives us the command that we are to love our enemies. It's something we don't want to do. 
Uh, it's, it grates against us. It's the upside down kingdom that you and I have to deal with as we think about that. And so what I want to do this morning is have us survey, go through the, the, the passage and survey the context of that and the content of it, and then come back and circle back to the idea of how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live it out? <clears throat> it's a very challenging text, but we have the command itself in verse 27, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Now this command is not totally new. Uh, the Old Testament law provided for not bitterness, not vengeance, but to uh, care for even those who are happen to be our enemies. We know the two great commands that Jesus highlights. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then the second, which is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But the, in the Old Testament, it, it highlights the way we are to deal with others, and it's not to cultivate a spirit of vengeance. I'm going to refer to some scriptures here early on in the sermon. Please don't try to keep up with me at this point, but later on I will have some texts for you to turn to. But in Leviticus 19, 18, uh, the law says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you're not to take vengeance. You're not to hold a grudge. But then the Israelites might say, well, that's only for uh, my people, uh, for the children of Israel. And so they might say, well, it's, oh, I need to take care of my people, okay, but it's okay to love, hate the enemies. That's okay. Do anything I want to them. But the law doesn't give you that freedom. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you might refrain from helping it, but you shall surely help him with it. So it wasn't just God's people he wanted them to care for. The law says even those who hate you, you are to help them. So it's not a new command, but it's not a command that they were being taught. And Jesus' statement here, but I tell you, implies that there's a part of a sentence that Luke, uh, for his good reasons, didn't record for us. Matthew gives that to us. Uh, the apparent missing statement, Jesus says, the Pharisees are saying, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. They added to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19 with that extra little phrase, but hate your enemy. It's not in the law. But that's what they taught. And Jesus is saying, but I say unto you, not hate your enemy, but love your enemy. 
And it's a, it's a startling command even to us today, but it was a, certainly a startling command to them because, again, their teachers would not have been teaching this. They would not have been giving this command. And when we think about loving our enemies, you are familiar with the different Greek words. You've probably heard messages on this before. There's three basic Greek words for love. One is eros, which relates to more of the passionate type of love. Uh, the other, another second one is phileo. It's the love of friendship. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which maybe isn't the case, but nevertheless, that's the name. And then you have the third word, agape, which communicates the very significant sacrificial love that uh, we are called to have for one another is the love God has for his children. And that's the word that Jesus is using here. He's not saying just love them as a friend or love them indifferently. He's saying, you know, there's a sacrificial act you're going to have in your love, even for your enemies. And we're going to come back to the idea of how do we live this out? How do we apply it? But right here in this text, Jesus is giving us three ways we are to love our enemy. And we are to love them by deeds, words, and prayers. He says to them, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. You and I are to do good deeds for those who hate us. We are to act in a right way for those uh, who do wrong. It's not telling us that we have to approve of their evil deeds uh, or be, be approval of, of all that they think or, or do, but the idea is that we are not to cultivate a spirit of revenge or a spirit of bitterness or a spirit of cruelty but even though they may act in unkindness, you and I are to do good deeds to them. We are to act according to what God wants for us. The second thing is, he says, um, bless those who curse you. When they curse you, you are to speak kindly in return. Uh, Peter will say to us, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you also may inherit a blessing. The Essenes in Qumran, they taught the exact opposite of Jesus. They taught that if someone didn't go along with you, you were to curse them. So what Jesus says, he has a higher standard. He has a different method. He says, even if they curse you, bless them. Uh, speak kindly to them. And the third thing we are to do is to pray for those who mistreat you. You're to pray for them. It's impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. And I don't mean the prayer that, well, get them, Lord. It's, it's about time they get, get it in the end or do what they need, do what needs to happen to them. That's not the prayer we're talking about. We're talking about praying for their welfare. 
praying for uh, good things to be a part of their life, perhaps significantly praying for their conversion. That would be a most wonderful thing to pray for someone who hates you and is doing ill against you. Pray for God to work in their life. And when you think about the Apostle Paul before he becomes a Christian, as he's standing there giving witness, approving of the murder of Stephen, and there he is standing approving of that uh, wicked deed, was there anyone praying that Paul would become a Christian? Was there anybody praying for his conversion as he's there standing approving of that? And the answer is yes, there was. It was Stephen himself. Toward the end of his life, there in Acts chapter 7, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was praying for Paul. He was praying for Paul's conversion. He maybe didn't have Paul's name on his lips, but that's what he was praying for. God, convert these people who are doing this evil deed and taking my life. And Stephen was following both the command and the pattern of Jesus Christ because you remember as he was being crucified, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And he was praying for the conversion of those even there putting him to death. And perhaps the testimony of the centurion, truly this is the Son of God, may be evidence that he, he was converted, he came to know the Lord. But certainly some of the Jews there that were participating in, his, in the crucifixion would later cry out under Peter's sermon, what must we do? And Peter would say, repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was praying for their conversion and his prayer was effective. And so Jesus says, we need to pray for those who mistreat us. So there's the command. And you and I are challenged, can, can we make this our prayer? Can you make this your prayer? Can you make this your obedience to this command? Uh, Jesus then moves on to the idea of uh, the of love's response to hostility. In verse 29, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. There are many passages that are misused, but this passage is probably one of the most misused passages in all of Scripture. Uh, is Jesus saying that you have to accept a violent assault of your person physically when he's saying this idea of turning the other cheek? Uh, Christians resent the idea of having to turn the other cheek. I remember a student minister in college was preaching a sermon and he brought up this text for some reason. I don't remember why, but 
He said, well, they'll hit me on one cheek and I'll give them the second cheek, but then, pow, I'm going to get them. <clears throat> well, that's, that's not it. But what is, what is Jesus getting at when he's saying uh, to turn the other cheek? Sinclair Ferguson is very helpful to us on this as um, in his little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, first, such a blow was more of an insult than a violent crime. It was an insult of massive proportions for it was a blow with the back of the hand, something still regarded as grossly offensive in the Near East. The fine for such an insult exceeded the average man's annual wages. Second, it was an insult for which the only recourse was to take a man to court as people might do today for libel or defamation of character. Can Jesus be suggesting that the disciples cannot seek to have their dignity reaffirmed in response to any insult? No. He is saying that because you have your reputation secure with God as his child, let your response to insult be gracious, just as your father's response to your insult of sin against him has, also, has been so gracious. Will anyone be won for the kingdom by your retaliation, by your standing on your rights? How could they be when the king in his kingdom is the one who did not retaliate? What Jesus is confronting is condemning the idea of, of lovelessness, hatred, yearning for revenge. And he's saying that's no part, should be no part of our life. Uh, he continues to go on with this idea, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Doesn't mean we can't have a right of possessions. Doesn't mean we have to go around without any clothing on. It doesn't mean... Uh, that we there aren't there aren't right measures to do when someone takes something from us that's a, appropriate. But what again he's driving at is not to be filled with the bitterness and the idea of retaliation, which is what's natural to us in our sinful selves. He says, "Give to everyone who asks you. You need to be generous, even to this person who insults you." If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. And he ends it with that, what we know as the golden rule, do, uh, do to others as you would have them do to you. Notice he doesn't say, do unto others how they do to you, but do unto others as you would want them to do to, to you. You have to conduct yourself in a way that's kind and merciful and you need to do the right thing regardless of whether that person deserves the right thing. You and I have to do what is right even if it's undeserved by the other person. You and I have to conduct ourselves the way we, God wants us to and Jesus concludes this section by uh, giving the answer to why does he want us to live this way? Why does he want us to act in this way? Well, there's three reasons he gives. 
One is he wants us to be distinct in the world from sinners. He says, why would you love someone who loves you? Don't even sinners do that? Why would you give to someone who you expect repayment back? Do not even sinners do that? He wants you to be different. He wants your life to be different. He wants your life to be manifestly uh, transformed. And to honor him, even in these areas of conflict, you are to be different, you're to be unselfish, you're to be a testimony to true love, even to those who uh, hate you, even to those who curse you. A second reason, he says, is so that you will receive a reward. reward. Then in, in verse 35, kind of in the middle, then your reward will be great. It's not the reward of merit. It's not even necessarily the reward of material things, though sometimes they can come. It's the reward of grace. When you live as your father wants you to live, as your king has directed you to live, you, you will have the rich reward of his love and his grace. It will be poured out abundantly in your life. You will know a peace of God that passes all understanding. That's why he wants you to live this way. And the third thing is, it's to demonstrate your sonship. Uh, he says, then you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked and be merciful just as your father is merciful. It's not that your obedience to this command makes you sons. It's that if you're a child of God and you live according to what God has directed you here, then you will demonstrate, you will reveal that you are the children of God. That you are sons of the Most High. And you and I show that we're sons when we remember that God was merciful to us even though we didn't deserve it. And God was kind to us even though we were ungrateful and wicked. We show ourselves to be sons of the King, sons of God, sons of the Most High when we live in such a way. Well, how do you do that? Uh, it's overwhelming, really, to think about this. Love your enemies. How in the world can I do that? How is it possible? Who can do that? Well, I want to answer the question, how do we do this in two ways? One is to think a little bit more about the manner or the way, uh, the how-to of, of obeying this command. Jesus has given us some. I want to take you to some other texts. But then secondly, answering how do you do this with thinking about what is your motivation? What is your help to do that, to live this way? You cannot do this on your own. We all know that by nature. You can't do it on your own. What power, what ability, what motivation do you have to live in this way? So how can you live in this way? What's the manner of your love? What's the, the actions of your love? 
even to enemies. When Jesus has already told us love in deeds, love in words, love in prayer, um, be willing to accept the hostility they have, even though you don't deserve it, by giving to them, doing to others as you would have them do to you. But I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I have several passages I want to direct you to. 1 Corinthians 13. Now this passage and the next one we'll look at is really the context of love among Christians more than love to enemies. But uh, Christians can be aggravating. Um, you live with one, they live with me. Um, Christians can be aggravating. So you've got to love them too. Um, and how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, picking it up there at that point. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It describes how we should love enemies, but also uh, be fellow believers, those in our family. How do we love? We, we, we got to be patient. We have to be kind. We have to be not proud, not rude, <clears throat> not self-seeking, not keeping a record of wrongs. That's a big one. Do we keep a list of all the things that someone has done? Our former associate pastor, Mark Wheat, some years ago was teaching a seminar for businessmen and trying to present some principles. Obviously, his Christian faith was a part of it, but principles on how you deal with conflict, how you deal with someone when someone has wronged you and he talk to them about forgiving, letting it go. And uh, those men said to him, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. And we can fall into that trap ourselves. We gotta, love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't remind you of the person every time they mess up again of all the times they did that. We need to love uh, in the way that Paul describes it here. Another passage is Philippians chapter 2. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 3 through 4. Again, the context of a church where there was conflict happening. And Paul's trying to give some directions here. So Philippians chapter two, uh, beginning at verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
That's really hard to do. Because you're interested in what you're interested in. But what Paul says, you got to consider the other person's interests as more important than your own. How do you do that? How do you consider them better than you, your ideas are better than their ideas? No, you got to consider others better than yourselves. You got to consider their interests more important than your own. How in the world do you do that? Well, we're kind of blending and moving on to the next point. How do we do that? What's the motivation? What's the model? Well, he tells us in verse five, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. How do we do this? You have to keep your eyes on Christ. You have to see Christ. You have to see what he did for you. And yeah, you may have to put up with some grief in this life, but what did Jesus put up for you? What did he go through with you, for you? And he demonstrated this notably in his life and among the many things we could think about. Think about the upper room. There Jesus was put a towel around his waist and was washing the disciples' feet and he comes to Judas. Could you have washed Judas' feet even though you knew he was going to betray you that very night? But he did. Jesus washed Judas' feet. And even the action of Jesus taking the piece of bread and dipping it in the wine and giving it to to Judas, some writers talk about how in that day, that was a very, even though he was identifying his betrayer, that was a, a dramatic uh, um, action of friendship. That when someone would do that, dip it and give it to someone, they were identifying themselves as a friend. Was Jesus, even at that moment, knowing Judas was going to be his betrayer, trying to reach him. But he gave that act of friendship to the one who would betray him. Jesus loved his enemies. He loved you. Uh, Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul expands on that and he says, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were his enemies, but he loved you. He loved you when you were his enemies. And he offered himself. Uh, one other passage, well, be two more. One, the next one is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 along the theme of keeping our eyes on Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse one is, we need to um, run the race that God has set before us. How do we do that in verse two? 
let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have to keep our eyes on Christ, who went to the cross for us. And then three continues it, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you grow weary and when you lose heart, one of the things that has happened is you have gotten your eyes off of Christ. The only way you're going to be able to do what God is asking of you to do is to keep your eyes on Christ. To see him. And what he did for you, how he loved you. If he loved you so much, how can you not love others? In verse four, I read and kind of chuckle in one sense. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In your love for another, in your struggling against sin, have you, have you shed blood? Well, Probably not. But we act like we have. You know, an insult comes our way and we, 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 we react just insanely um, and feel like no, nothing has happened to anybody else like it's happened to us. But we keep our eyes on Christ who endured such opposition from sinful men. And we see how much he loved me. And then the one other passage I want to take you to is 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you would turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2. In Jesus Christ, we have not only our pattern and our motivation, we have our help. Uh, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. In 1 Peter 2, again, looking at Christ, uh, Peter's, gonna, Peter's bringing up what Jesus suffered. So 1 Peter 2, verse 21, says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our, own, our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He gives us not only the model and the pattern that's in Christ, that he, he did nothing wrong, and yet he suffered terribly. They hurled their insults at him, but he didn't retaliate. Well, how is Jesus able to do that? Because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. See, when you experience hostility, when you experience insults, when you experience a harshness, you remember Jesus. Not only what he did for you, but that he himself entrusted himself 
to the one who would judge, judge justly. You put yourself into the hands of the Father, knowing he will care for you and he will watch over you. You and I are part of an upside down kingdom that Jesus is building. And there are things that don't make sense to our human minds, but it's what the path God has put us on, that Jesus has put us on. And if you claim to be a child of God, you need to love like he did. Uh, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. May God equip each of us and enable us to live this kind of radical love for the glory of Almighty God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundance of your love and mercy and how wonderfully Jesus has loved us and poured out his life for us. Help us, Lord, as we uh, live in this world and have the calling to love one another, love even those who are against us, love those who uh, are hostile to, our, to us. May we learn to, to live and to love as Jesus did and do that with the strength and the power that comes through your Holy Spirit's work in our heart as we remember what you did for us. Please be at work in us and let us be testimonies to the glory of your name uh, through we ask all this in, G in Jesus' name. Amen.